This is Two Gringos with Questions, a series of interviews featuring political and cultural leaders from across the Americas, brought to you by the Canadian Council for the Americas and Global Americans. So, Ken, uh, who are we talking to? Uh, hi, Chris. Well, today we're speaking with Jay Perini, who is a world-renowned poet, author, screenplay writer, and uh, is also a professor uh, and a, with a chair at Middlebury College and has been there since the mid-80s. Um, his best-selling novel, The Last Station, about the final months of Leo Tolstoy, was translated into over 30 languages. It, it was adapted into an Academy Award-nominated film with Helen Mirren, Christopher Plummer, Paul Giamatti, and others. Uh, he is almost the inventor, I suppose, is certainly one of the leading proponents of biographical fiction, which is something that we hope to, to talk to him about today. But the book that uh, has caught our attention, which has gotten rave reviews from the New York Times and elsewhere, uh, is a story of an adventure he had with the famous Argentine writer, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, when he had just arrived as a graduate student in St. Andrews in Scotland back in 1971. So we're looking forward to this uh, and let's get to it. Um, Jay, thank you very much for joining us today. This is a conversation, uh, as soon as I found out about this book, that I certainly wanted to have. And when speaking to Chris, he definitely was equally interested. Mine, for a lot of personal reasons. I've, I've known you since you first arrived on college campus in 1975, I guess. Wow, that's a long time ago. It's true. Yeah, 1970. I have to admit. Yeah, 1975. But I, I do remember a lot meeting you, Jay, because you were an English professor, although I, I wasn't an English major, I would hang around in the English library. Right. Every day, because every day at four o'clock, they would bring out uh, Pepperidge Farm cookies and tea. That's and right. for 20, 25 cents, you could get it. Um, and if they were Mint Milano's, uh, you were really in luck that day. <laughs> but, but since then, you've written 20 books. A number of them have been made into screenplays, and you just put out another beautiful book, uh, Borges and Me. Um, and I don't want to try and describe what it is. Why don't you take a few minutes, if you would, just to, to describe what this, this, the central organizing principle of the book is and, and why you did it? Well, you know, in 19, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, I went back to St. Andrews University in Scotland as a grad student. I'd been there on my junior year abroad. I'd loved it, and I went back briefly to America. And then I really fell afoul of the US and my draft board and decided I should get out of the country. And I didn't know whether to go to Canada or Europe. And, uh, and because I'd been in St. Andrews and I'd had a girlfriend over there, and I thought, I want to go back. That never worked out, the girlfriend. But um, I went back to Scotland, avoiding the draft. And I kept getting letters from my draft board, and I would just never open them. My, my mentor, Alistair Reed, said to me, never open them and you'll never be legally liable. So I never did. But they <laughs> gathered in my drawer. And um, Alistair Reed, uh, I, re I met in a bar through a friend. And um, he became my sort of writing, especially poetry, mentor. He lived in a little house on the sea called Pilmore Cottage with his young son, who was about eight or nine. And uh, the two of them lived out there. And sometimes a guy called Jeff, who was one of my best friends, lived with them. And I spent a lot of time out there. And Alistair would really teach me how to write. I'd sit next to him, and we'd write 
I'd give him a rough draft of a poem, and he would correct me, as he said, and, and he would rewrite the poem. And one day he told me that he was having a visitor, Jorge Luis Borges from Argentina. I'd never heard of him. I said, who's this? He said, oh, he's a very good writer, and I'm translating him. I said, I never heard of him. And then Borges arrived, and we met, and, and then Alistair one day called and said, Jay, I've got to rush to London. There's some issue. Uh, could you possibly hang out with Borges for a few days, maybe a week? while I'm gone. He's, you know, he's blind and he needs somebody right there. I said, well, all right. I turned up, I just bought a 1957 rust bucket, a Morris Minor for 300 pounds. And I rattled over to Alistair's house and Alistair immediately left with Jasper. And, uh, and Jeff was gone. He was in Edinburgh that week. And um, Borges said, I hear you have this wonderful car. I said, yeah, I do. I don't know if it's wonderful. It barely moves. He said, I have a man I must see in uh, Inverness. Can you drive me to Inverness? I want to see the highlands on the way. I said, but Bor Mr. Borges, you're blind. He said, oh, no, Jay, don't tell me you're blind as well. Right? <laughs> no, I'm not blind. He said, good, you'll be my eyes. So we took off and had all these adventures. It was just a brief trip, three or four nights on the road. Astonishing things happened. And for years, I told people about these, these stories. My wife, when I first met my wife 45 years ago, she said the first date we went on, I regaled her with stories of my little trip to Inverness with Borges. Did that work, by the way? It was worked. That a good, is he that a good like, opening line, a good sort of a... It was a great come a, on. Yeah, yeah good, okay. She said, yes, I do. Right, and okay. So we were married ever since, and, and we got... I never tried that one, but okay. Try that. And so I told so many Borges stories over the years at dinner parties, but I never thought of it as a book. You know, I've, writ I've written actually 26 or seven books, novels, books of poetry, uh, books of essays, uh, and biographies of various people, Robert Frost, John Steinbeck, William Faulkner, and so forth, blah, blah. And I never thought of a memoir or anything about Borges. And I, I wrote a book about Gore Vidal about three or four or five years ago. Gore was a great friend of mine for 35 years, and I wrote his biography. And, we, and I turned it into a screenplay with a, 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 the director, Michael Hoffman. And we shot this movie in Italy three years ago, in Southern Italy at Gore Vidal's villa. I was out there for three months and uh, lots of different, um, Kevin Spacey, by the way, was playing uh, Gore Vidal. That's another story altogether. Yeah, that's... Uh... And, uh, but we worked together. I was behind the camera for every shot, every take for, for three months. We made the movie. It was, it was a, it's in the can right now, ready to be released whenever Kevin Spacey's life settles down. And um, I was sitting in a village in southern Italy, and a man came into the, sat with us, and the producer, Andy Patterson, was there. He produced Girl with Pearl Earring and many other things, including my gore movie. And Ross Clark had just done his second or third movie, uh, was just chatting, and he pulled out of his, his briefcase the collected stories of Borges, labyrinths, uh, selected stories, labyrinths. And I said, oh, do you like Borges? He said, like Borges? I love Borges. He's the only writer I ever read. I said, well, let me tell you a little story. And a bunch of guys sitting around the table. Uh, and um, I told them the story of my travels with Borges, and they were listening, and I was entertaining them with these stories. And Ross Clark said, oh, my God, Jay, that's a perfect movie. I'm going to make that movie. And Andy Patterson said, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to produce that movie. And I said, well, there's, you know, I want to write. Let me see if I can make some notes. Don't, don't rush this. 
And I thought, well, if I can make it into, I'll try and write 30 pages, I thought, about this trip. And so I went back to my house and uh, over the next um, six months, in fact, 300 and some pages spilled out, just flowed out. I was remember, I went back, I had some notes from those, that era. I went back to my early journals and I had all these entries where I had conversations recorded between myself and Borges. And so I started writing and my God, the whole thing just flowed out. And so I, 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 um, so I, so essentially it was a book inspired by the idea of a movie, which, which we are going to do. I've written the screenplay already, but um, interesting. I thought when I, when I wrote the book, uh, I, I, I first thought of it as a, no, I'll write it as a true novel. I was thinking of Norman Mailer's uh, Armies of the Night, history of the novel as a novel, the novel right. of history. Right. Well, I said, I'll write a true story that's actually a novel. I, I was, I'm very interested in the idea of autofiction. So uh, I, I did that as a, I wrote it as a novel. And, uh, and then I said, well, you know, my editor said, looked at it and said, I love this, but um, how is it a novel? This is you, this is Alistair, this is Borges and so forth. I said, well, some of the characters, the girl is composite and the guy in Vietnam is composite. And I'm making up the dialogue because, you know, I have some notes, but I wasn't keeping a tape recorder. And I'm really inventing, mem remembering, but inventing many of the scenes in the dialogue. So I want to call it a, a novel. And he said, no, well, I think it's really a memoir. And I said, well, let's compromise. Let's call it an encounter. And I'll say in the afterward, it's a kind of novelized memoir. So that's what the book is. It's a story of my journey uh, from St. Andrews up through um, Lower Largo, up through the Highlands of Scotland, stopping at various sites, various wacko things happening along the way. Uh, I make a little a side excursion as I did to see somebody in on the Isle of Orkney that I was working on for my PhD thesis, and then back. And when I got back to St. Andrews, this is true, I discovered that my friend from high school had been killed in Vietnam. And Borges was very, very moved by this. And Alistair was back by then from London. And, and uh, Alistair insisted we build a bonfire on the beach there in St. Andrews. And Borges loved this idea. And we took the, ate these hash brownies and we danced around the fire. And uh, one by one, I burned all the letters from my draft board. And so that's the shape of the story. It's interesting because as you're, when, as you tell it in the book, during that bonfire, um, you're reciting lines from Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. That's right, yeah. Uh, and um, one of the personal connections I had when I was in college and we read, had to read that freshman year. And um, ha be, having come from a public school, I had no idea what he was saying about anything or any of the things we read in freshman English. But I do remember um, the line that was pointed out by the professor where he says something, if you don't understand me, try me again or come back. I'm just paraphrasing it. Uh, and in fact, I did many, many, many years ago, actually for my son's bar mitzvah. And I picked it up and all of a sudden it meant something to me. And so um, I imagine this is, a, this is a, that bit of a personal connection as to your story with Borges and trying to make more sense of it, I suppose, is a bit of what this exercise was for you as well, no? Although you understood it at the time, but you understood it 50 years later in a much more profound way, I'm guessing. Yeah, I sort of needed 50 years, frankly, to process this material and to um, get, it, get it straight in my head and to, 
understand how the, the encounter with Borges was transformative in a bizarre way. I feel like his, his wild outlook on life, his sort of, um, well, what, he, what became magic realism, but a sense of the thin line between reality and the imagination or the interdependence of the real on the imagined uh, seemed to me so crucial. And Borges, of course, was big on the idea of, of truth and fiction. He did, over and over, he would say to me, remember, anything that's processed by memory is fiction. He said to me, the word fiction comes from fictio, which means to shape. And anytime you're shaping a scene, you're writing fiction, even if it's nonfiction. And he said, history is really fiction. And he told me he'd just been to Israel. And he said, you know, you walk into any Israeli bookshop and you see there's a row, you ask for novels, they'll say, we don't have novels on a separate shelf. We catalog story, nonfiction and fiction on the same shelf, shelf called narrative in Hebrew, siporetz. And so I was totally fascinated by that. You talk about, Jay, um, having a number of discussions with him about authors. And I know his, his views on a number of authors, old and contemporary, were contentious. And one of the ones you talk about is, is uh, his, his view of Cervantes. Can you encapsulate that a little bit? Because he sort of went against the grain, let's say, uh, on the uh, sort of who's seen as being the founding father of the novel. Well, he was very funny on that. Um, one of the things he, I remember early on in the journey, actually, he was taking a leak. He had to take a leak. He said, please pull over. I must relieve myself. And he's taking a leak. He gets out of my car and he's got his cane and he starts peeing on, my, uh, on the tire um, of my car. And I jumped out and I said, you know, Borges, you're peeing on my car. He said, oh, it's all right. It won't, it's no problem. He takes his cane and he slaps the hood of the car and he says, uh, I christen your car, Rochinante, the lazy horse of Don Quixote. Uh -huh. And he said to me, Jay, have you read Don Quixote? I said, no, I haven't really read it. He said, oh, when you read it, you'll read it with a marvelous sense of recollection. So well, how will I recollect a book I haven't read before? He said, that's what a classic is, Jay. It's a book that's so deeply embedded in the culture, you don't even have to read it. But when you read it, it comes back to you as remembrance. I love that. And uh, I had that in my notes. And I also remember him saying to me, uh, he talking endlessly about A Thousand and One Nights and how the great narrator of all time is Scheherazade. And I said, I said, Borges, who wrote um, A Thousand and One Nights? And Borges said to me, who wrote it? Oh, I did. I said, what, what do you mean you wrote A Thousand and One Nights? He said, oh, Jay, I wrote all the classics. And he said, it has so annoyed my contemporaries. Well, it's the same thing, his short story about um, the man who wrote, Cervant, who wrote Don Quixote. Um, Pierre, Pierre Menard. Pierre Menard, yeah, one of, one of his best known and, and great short stories. But, one of his other well-known ones is, is Borges and I, yeah. right? Where, which, is, which is only two pages long mm -hmm. uh, and is a bit of a contemplation on um, Borges, the person, Borges, the author, and, and I guess a lot of play back and forth trying to understand what is, how they meld and how they don't meld, but at the end they sort of do meld. At least that was my amateur reading of it. Um, and the title of your book is Borges and Me. Yeah. Um, you obviously had it in mind, <laughs> the Borges and I short story. So what was it, what was the thinking on that? Well, I was, I thought, I mean, um, at first I thought of calling the book Borges and I, just using the same title. 
But then I thought, nah, I'm going to make it a little more colloquial. And also, you know, I want to emphasize the me. It's not just an it. And, and there are a lot of similarities, very superficial, but similarities between myself and Borges. He's an old man. I'm a young man. But he's in love with this distant woman, Nora Lang, from his 19th birth, age of 19. He was in love with this beautiful redheaded Norwegian girl. I was myself sort of yearning for a, a kind of red blonde headed uh, uh, Scandinavian type of girl. Uh, we had this longing, unrequited. He had one sister, I had one sister. He had an obsessive uh, mother who wouldn't let him be. I had an obsessive mother who wouldn't let me be. His father was obsessed with heroism and his great grandfather had been the the general in the battle of the colonel in the in one of the great battles of of argentina bolivia the, the battle of junin and my father was obsessed with the fact that his three brothers had been in world war ii and had landed with general mark clark on the beaches of salerno in 1943 in italy so we talked about we it seemed like we had an awful lot in common and so i was thinking that borges and me it's a kind of mirroring of, of, of that kind of thing. And I tried to use many, many, many of the Borgesian tropes in this book, you know, uh, his obsession with labyrinths, his obsession with libraries and reading, uh, his encyclopedia obsession, uh, his interest in riddles, uh, his interest in mirrors and doubles. So I did a lot of doubling in this book. So that's, that's what that's all about. How does that, uh, you, you mentioned that you've converted this into a screenplay. I'm curious, you know, Borges' image rich and this porous border between the imagination and, and life, does that, is that, how do you convey that if you do or attempt to in the movie or in the screenplay? It's easier to do on the written page. How do you do that uh, visually, do you think? Well, we did try to play with this in the film of having, uh, at one point, having it almost seem like Borges is writing a story in which I'm a character. Um, as in one of his stories, there's a, you know, who's dreaming whom, you know yeah. what I mean? Yep. And so we do that with, you know, uh, quick cuts and, and lots of fog and lighting and strange uh, auras and different kinds. We're, we're going to try to create the same uh, sense at times of entering into a Borgesian mystery zone. Nice. That's one of our ideas. I think we've got a, a really a great, a, a wonderfully fun screenplay. There, there are, um, you know, Going back again in a personal connection, Borges was another author besides Walt Whitman, who I was first introduced to and in college in freshman year. Mm. And, um, and I didn't enjoy it at all. Right? Mm. I think we started with El Aleph and we were reading it in Spanish and you know, reading Borges in English because of the games and the labyrinths and all these other kinds of, you know, some might call it pedantry, some might call it just brilliant associations and, and thoughts, but whatever, it was all way beyond my, my ability to grasp at that point. Um, but I've gone back again, uh, another one that I've gone back to just recently, and appreciate why people respect him so much. And, you know, and, and I've talked to writers and say, oh, yeah, well, he's a writer's writer. And others will tell me that, um, and I've read a bit, as is Chris, and as of you, a fair amount of Latin American literature and through the years, but others would tell me that he's um, the second most important writer in the Spanish language after Cervantes. Mm. I, I, I don't know how even to evaluate that. I, for me, it's someone I can appreciate 
um, and read any of these number of stories. We mentioned a few and, and then the others. But it's, it, it's, it's a lot of razzle-dazzle, sophisticated razzle-dazzle. And I don't mean that necessarily in, in, in a pejorative way. Um, but it's hard for me to, to put him on that pedestal uh, that way. Do you, do you, how do you view his writing in, in, in the overall context of not just Latin American literature, but people writing in Spanish? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Alistair was, my friend Alistair was translating both Borges and Pablo Neruda. Neruda. And so right. um, at one point, um, in fact, the year after I met Borges, I, went, I was in London with Alistair, and he took me to dinner with Pablo Neruda. And so right. I, I had amazing conversations with Neruda. And then I went to a reading Neruda gave uh, somewhere in London. I was quite amazed by that reading. He was a powerful figure and has meant a great deal to me as well. I want, uh, so much so that later I traveled to um, Chile and visited the three houses of Pablo Neruda. Right. And I was intrigued by the fact that in every single one of his studies where he wrote, there was a life-size portrait, floor to ceiling, of Walt Whitman. Mm. Walt Whitman was his like icon, uh, that, he, that he got power from Walt Whitman. And Borges was obsessed with Walt Whitman. And so I'm interested in this connection between Whitman and the two great writers of Latin America in the 20th century uh, of a certain era, uh, Neruda and Borges. There are connections here. And I do, I do in, my, in my book, Borges and Me, explore the Whitman connection pretty carefully. Yeah. But do you, do you have a view about where Borges stands in the pantheon of great Spanish literature? Well, he's certainly up there in the top 10 writers in Spain. Right. Right. right, right. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's, it's a bit of a, a mugs game to try and rank them. It depends on where you are in your life as a reader. Right. Where you it's are interesting. Human it's, being. But the, the generation after them, they're, well, they're, I think they're, Walt Whitman was always revered as well. But the, the, like Garcia Marquez and, and that group, one, their real reference point in U.S. was Faulkner. Yes. So, I mean, it's, I guess it was sort of a, a generational shift from Whitman being the central piece, although very much respected, of course, but it became Faulkner. And with the idea of being that anything below the Mason-Dixon line through somewhere in the middle of, of South America and the Amazon was sort of considered to be heavily influenced by um, black culture and, yeah. and, and that whole thing. And, that, and so that was, that was where a lot of their, um, uh, what they looked to as, as the highest level of, of English writing. Well, remember, Borges translated Faulkner. He was the first Latin American to translate Faulkner. He translated the whole novel, The Wild Palms, into Spanish in the 1930s. So he was obsessed with Faulkner as well. I remember um, uh, I, was, I once had, a, had Mario Vargas Llosa came and visited me, and, and he talked obsessively about Faulkner and said that probably Faulkner is the most influential American writer after Whitman on most Latin American writers. Yeah. Did you have a chance while you're in the UK touring around Scotland to talk about English writers? I know he, he if I recall, and, and I may be getting this wrong, he, he really did not like Ulysses by James Joyce, um, Ireland, not uh, the UK. Um, what, what Did he talk about contemporary or, or UK well, literature? He, yes, he was obsessed with um, an odd, he had an odd um, hierarchy of writers. He said his favorite writers in English were G.K. Chesterton, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Thomas De Quincey. <laughs> so that is a very unexpected pantheon, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
He obviously knew, knew and respected Shakespeare, but those were the writers, the more, and Kipling, I'd say Kipling, De Quincey, uh, Stevenson, and uh, those, were the, those were writers he was obsessed with. And Stevenson, why? I mean, I, I liked him growing up. I wouldn't have thought of him as being, I mean, obviously there were great moral plays yeah. in Stevenson's literature, but it was, why, why Stevenson? Well, he said that he thought that Jack, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was uh, really explained everything you need to know about Scotland. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and he just loved Stevenson's poetry, you know, home is the hunter, home from the hills, you know, and the sailor, home from the sea. He just thought he had a real ring to him. And, but nobody reads much of Chesterton these days, but he loved Chesterton. The Father Brown detective stories, which he said inspired his own detective work. And, uh, you know, he had such a, a, a range of allusions to everybody. You know, he loved uh, John Milton, he could quote, uh, you know, he could quote so many authors. We talked How? about, he talked about everybody. We talked about an obscure um, 17th century poet, Chidiok Tichborn. So, How demanding was he as, uh, as your uh, charge in terms of uh, a tour guide? Uh, you had to do, I mentioned you had to describe what you were seeing and you're describing what you're seeing to one of the best writers, modern writers at the time, probably the best writers in the world ever, history. Yeah. And, and, and was, that had to be a little challenging, and certainly. Yeah. I remember driving along uh, uh, fairly early in the journey, and we're driving along the sea. And he said, you're sitting there silently. What are you seeing? I thought, oh, Christ. I said, well, I see the sea, and there are some seagulls. He said, I thought you said you want to be a poet. I said, I do. He said, well, then do better than that. He said, give me imageries. He said, Jay, description is revelation. Describe, 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 and describe with symbols and metaphors. So he, upped, he made me up my game. Yeah, I can imagine. And doing it on the fly, too, without the benefit of going back and revising. Right. You had to so, do it right there and describe. He said, he said, don't ever say bird. Don't ever say flower say lapwing, um, petrel, seagull, you know, he said herring gull, don't say flower, say daisy, say, you know, say tulip. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jay, the, you know, the book is a combination of, of a number of things. It's certainly what we've been discussing mostly now about Borges and your experiences. It's also for you a bit of, and you mentioned it at, at the beginning, a, a, a bit for you of, of a coming of age story. Mm. Not a coming of age when you're, you know, you're first reaching puberty, but, you know, at, at the next stage, as it were, as you said, you were the only, I think you repeated it in interviews and even in the book, and that Alistair said you were the only virgin in the age of Aquarius. Uh, and so there was, that, that whole aspect is sort of, is, is laced uh, into the narrative. Uh, and it's also, in, in, a, in some sort of a form, you're, uh, although less adventurous in the sense, but it's your... It's your road novel in a way. It's, I don't know if I'm calling it your on the road, but there's, yeah. there's all three of those things at least and probably a few others if I stop to think about might come to me. And so the question that, so anyway, there's just a sort of a general comment, but you know, the, one of the questions I have about it is, um, had you been in, in the car with another great writer? Uh, I didn't even know any writers, right? Right, so in other words, I mean, so this, this is obviously very interesting, particularly because it's Borges, and Borges is a very particular character uh, in his own right, and, and, and for a whole lot of reasons, which anybody who's read him and, and people who've described him would, um, would acknowledge. But this uh, 
how important do you think is the, the fact that it's Borges that you're with, as opposed to if you had been writing with uh, Garcia Marquez three years after he published 100 Years of Solitude, even if you didn't know about 100 Years of Solitude, how central is Borges himself versus another great writer to, your, to what oh, your Borges, story? Borges is a complete universe to himself. Um, as Alistair said about him, he had a whim of iron. And, um, you know, he had his own bizarre, peculiar humor and way of looking at the world. And I think this affected me my whole life. I've been like, I felt like I've been sort of transformed by Borges. You know, the very first day out, we went to uh, Lower Largo to see Robinson Crusoe's uh, home. Uh, and we stayed, we went into the Crusoe pub. And that was the first night out. We stayed there. And um, I said to Borges, what we went into the bar. I said, what will you have, Borges? He said, oh, I don't usually drink, but I'd like some typical Scottish beer. I said, okay. I brought him a pint of export. And he stuck his finger, this is blind man, he sticks his finger in the beer, swirls it around and licks his finger. And I'm a little OCD and I thought, oh God, I'm gonna be stuck with this old guy for several days here. And I said to him, so, uh, Borg, Mr. Borges, that's I call it. he said, no, mister, just Borges. I said, okay, ho okay, Borges. He said, I said, Alistair tells me you're a writer. He said, oh, Alistair's always exaggerating. <laughs> he said, so you're not a writer. Oh, he said, I wrote a few little stories and I got very dismissive in my mind. I said, so how many novels have you written? He said, none. You didn't want to write novels? He said, oh, Jay, my whole life I dreamed uh, I would write the great novel of the Pampas and there would be gauchos and prostitutes and generations would rise and fall. There would be war and peace. It would be a thousand pages long, maybe 2,000. I said, well, Borges, what happened to this book? He said, well, one, two, three decades passed. And in the fourth decade, Jay, one morning I woke, I went to my desk and I wrote a 200 word review of this novel and that satisfied the impulse. <laughs> well, actually, it, it, it's an interesting point. Can, can you think of anybody who's considered in the pantheon of the greatest writers ever, who never has, hasn't written a novel? And it's just written, quote, I don't mean just, but you know, in, 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 when we think of these, quote, great writers, we think of great novels, um, yes. certainly is the first thing. Is there anybody that you can think of that is in that category who hasn't written a novel? Well, the great poets usually haven't written novels, right? Right, fair Brock, enough. Wallace Stevens, none of them. Right. They, uh, they didn't write novels, really. But, um, but, but poetry has always been considered great writers, great poets. It always seems like there's right. almost like two categories. Borges, right. even though he wrote great poetry, and I know many people think his poetry is better than his, than his, than his prose, yes. but still enough, he's, he's considered in both of those categories, yet his prose category is filled with short stories, not with novels. You remember, nothing he's ever written ever went beyond 13 pages. 13. Right. right. So he worked in, he was a miniaturist. Wow. Unusual to be a great writer and work in such a, a small form. Did he take an interest in what you were working on? Or was it mostly, was the communication mostly you relaying to him? I, mean, did he... I, th I, think that to, I think that me, in his mind, I was just his chauffeur. And he showed a little interest, and, um, but not a great deal. I mean, he did question me about certain things, especially things that chimed with his own life, right? But, you know, he was blind. I can remember so vividly what he, him saying to me, speak louder, I'm blind. So he was, right. uh, it was, he was funny, but he, I don't think he, I think he probably 
w once I passed, once I said goodbye to him, I think I passed out of his memory until a few years later when I got my job at Dartmouth, uh, I wrote to him and I sent him a copy of my first book of poems. And the next thing I knew is I get, an, I get a, new, a translation of his new book of stories and there's a story in there called Gredus Ad Parnassum, The Steps Up Parnassus. And in there he writes, um, I want to uh, talk about Ginsburg, Emilio Ginsburg, not, Art, not um, the usual Ginsburg. And I want to address the essay in the New York Review of Books by the eminent Dartmouth professor, Jay Perini. <laughs> and he says, he says this, but as usual, he's missed the actual marrow of the work in question. <laughs> and uh, right. he, and I have to tell you the, um, and I've had for decades people writing to me saying, I've been searching in the New York Review of Book arcades, uh, archives for your essay on Ginsburg. And I, and I say, well, no, that's just an invention. I never wrote anything on Ginsburg. And the long quotation supposedly from me is made up. So Borges made me into a fictional character in 1976. And so I feel like um, I'm getting back at him a little bit here. <laughs> that's pretty funny. You know, Jay, one of the other characters in the book, uh, uh, Spanish personajes uh, he, he referred to earlier was Alistair Reed, right? Who yeah. I think, um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I am, was actually the person who coined the term magical realism. He could be. I believe so, because I actually remember coming to college and hosting him. He probably was up at college through through your good offices. He was. Um, yeah, and um, Alistair was, was a larger-than-life figure in, in his own right. Um, many years writing for the New Yorker, the, the, the important translations he was doing. Um, and yet I don't think he's ever quite gotten, uh, certainly outside of a small circle, the, maybe the credit or, 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 or the, the profile that maybe he deserved in the history of, of boom literature in Latin America. Do you want to talk a little bit about Alistair? Not just what he did, but he also lived a little bit larger than life as well. Well, you know, he lived um, in this amazingly itinerant life. He said he never owned more than he could carry in one suitcase. Um, he lived in a different house for the most part every year. You know, he lived variously in southern France, in Morocco, a lot of his life, life in Spain. He had a farm in Mallorca, in, in Deja. He um, had a little apartment in Greenwich Village where you once visited him. He, for he spent 13 years in the Dominican Republic and um, in the in the Samana Peninsula, where he built a little uh, hut, he lived in the in, uh, in the palm trees right by the sea, raising his own food, being barefoot most of the time, collecting rainwater in his cistern. I visited him there many many times. Uh, he and I were in extremely close touch uh, for fifty years, nearly a, a half a century. And was his choice of life um, just the way things happened? to turn out or is it guided by a certain principle? Obviously the life that you just described is not what we would call the standard life as it were, at least at least not in, in, in the pedestrian recital that we all understand the way people live their lives these days. Was, was there a principle or a theory behind why he lived that way? I think he was the original hippie. I think he wanted to simplify, simplify, simplify. I think he had an amazing way of living in the moment. I think he was an incredibly kind, interesting, generous, eccentric man. 
I think his linguistic gifts were spectacular. And the great tragedy is that he never really wrote very much. And why, why didn't he write more? I have no idea. Um, he wrote a handful of poems. He did the, the tr excellent translations of some Neruda and Borges and a few other poets. And he wrote these pieces of journalism for the New Yorker over and on, now and again. But, you know, he really wasn't driven to accomplish anything, to create an oeuvre. That just wasn't Alistair. It wasn't who he was. Mm. He was his own man. Jay, one of the things that I, I loved about reading your book um, is you can always tell, or at least I think I can tell, when it, it's a, a poet at heart who's writing prose. Mm. Um, it always, and I, you know, when I was reading, when I read that, I, the first author I thought of was Michael Andajic, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, it, there's, 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 uh, each word is chosen, mm -hmm. uh, and each word, it's almost like poetry in prose form. Uh, as a poet, do you, because I think you would consider poetry or initially your first really, yeah. your prime vocation, as it were, did you, do you think there's a different way that poets write prose than non-poets write prose? There is. To this day, poetry is my main form of writing. I've always considered myself a poet who does some prose on the side. And, uh, but when I write prose, I, it's, I try to make it as poetic as can be. And so with Borges and, and me, I really felt like almost for the first time I was able to get into prose everything I ever got into poetry. Uh, whereas I my, I my diction was very carefully chosen. I feel like I got it really close to my own poetic voice. Um, I, I mean, it's full of metaphors and images, and, and I'm interested in the rhythm of each paragraph. And, uh, and uh, one reader wrote to me and said, you know, this book wasn't even like reading. It was like gliding. Right. I tried to make it so you don't even know you're reading. You're just in entering into a world, and it's utterly visual. And, and but that that's not no, is that a conscious process that's going on in your mind is right that's just the way you put words together i think so i think it's you know 50 years of writing uh suddenly i've got enough technique built up where i can just do a thing like this yeah, yeah. you know w one of the things it, I, also when i was reading the book and I, it's it's a little bit of uh, a little bit of a reach and tangential but there's a bit of um self-confessional or certainly self uh exposing yourself Sure. In, 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 in the, I suppose recently, the, the greatest exponent of that would be, you know, Canalsgard, right? Right. 2,500 words of which, which I, you know, which I happen to find extraordinarily interesting mm. uh, and, and enjoy. Um, do you, and, and apparently a lot of people in the world did as well in terms of the, the way he took the literary world by storm, as it were. Um, do you have a view of that kind of personal involvement? As you mentioned when you were first talking to your um, author, you were, you had, I think you used a, a pseudonym Luke or whatever the name was to describe yourself. Right. That's and, it. I'm, I'm and then he said, no, no, it's you, Jay. So just use the word Jay and talk about it. And you feel, well, you know, it's me, I'm not sure. But then there are people like Canalsgaard say, yeah, damn it, that's the only way you can do it. So how, how did you, how did you work that through in your mind? I had to fight my way through to writing in the first person as Jay. Because um, you know, I've written a, I've written a dozen novels in my life, and I'm used to writing as somebody else. Uh, in I mean, I've written a novel in the voice of Herman Melville, for God's sake, Tolstoy. Right. 
So I'm used to writing, uh, and, 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 and you're always writing about yourself even when you write about an historical figure, but you're able to disguise it, you see? Right. But here, but here I wasn't really able to disguise it. If I said I'm having, if I say I'm horny as hell, I'm horny as hell and it's me. If I say I'm unhappy, I'm crazy, I can't sleep, I have existential crisis, it's me. I really was, you know, I really was thought, thought I was going crazy and I really did go to that psychiatrist that's in the book. And, and I, he, I said, I think of death all the time. I, I'm, and I'm, I was taking tranquilizers. And he said to me, listen, um, we can fix this. He said, We're gonna, it's called electroshock therapy. We'll put an electrode on one yeah, side right, and, right. and another there. And he said, we'll pass a, a, a current through your brain and it will kind of reshuffle your deck. Right. I didn't want my deck reshuffled. But I decided to write all that down. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, I was pretty cuckoo in those days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, those, those, were, those were very complicated times, right? And, and I think that's one of the beauties of the book is you, you weave that in, the, the, the Vietnam War, you know, the, the, the conundrum, the, the, and you talk about the, the, is it right to be ignoring the, the letters from the, the draft? I think you say, you know, the conversation is, well, if I don't go, somebody else is going to go and die in my place and all those kinds of things. And there, there weren't a lot of clear answers to a lot of that. And God knows there were there are whole kinds of um, moralistic superstructures that were being constructed, even whether properly or improperly. And mm. it was really hard to, to find your way around that. I want to just ask you, I always say one last question and I just keep talking and talking, but it, it seems to me, and getting away from the book a little bit, but you know, your first love um, of poetry, it just seems somewhere along the way, modern poetry, lost its audience or lost a, a big portion of its of its audience when it became um, I'll use the word too cerebral but a whole lot of things that weren't well it wasn't Robert Frost there right. weren't they were and, uh, you know about whom you you are an expert somewhere along the way and I you know many times read <laughs> the poetry in the New Yorker so at some point you just stop reading it you, know, yeah. you look at it and say I'm just not going to understand this and you know is it Am I stupid? I mean, is it, is it, is it just so far beyond me? What's the, what is the state of poetry? What, why has it, and maybe my characterization is wrong, but why isn't it as widely read and appreciated as you think it should be and I think it should be? Well, you're, I think poetry lost its footing in about 1930. And um, there, there, once, there once was the sense of Wordsworth that a poet was a, he, his phrase was a man speaking to men. Um, and I say a person speaking to other people. Right. And I always say that poetry should be uh, a way of framing reality, right? It's, it's, it's embodying our sense of reality. Um, and so the great poets, Whitman, Emily Dickinson, Robert Frost, Wallace Stevens, even T.S. Eliot, it was difficult, but yet I can read T.S. Eliot's four quartets as I do every year over and over and over again. And it's, I have the me these, this work memorized, it stays in my brain. And when was the last poet whose work we really memorized? I mean, there certainly have been sparks along the way, wonderful poets, uh, but for the most part, poetry lost its audience when it became extremely obscure and quote, experimental, unquote, uh, avant-garde. I mean, once poetry entered into the realm of, the, of gibberish, 
it lost its audience. I mean, there were some great poets. I mean, Robert Lowell had marvelous moments. Right, right. Edgar Retke had marvelous moments. Right. Nobody could really read John Ashbery. I'm sorry, but they can't. <laughs> I tried. And you can try, but you're not yeah, going to get much yeah. out of it. I mean, and so for, and and I'd say ninety percent of the poetry that's published today and is is pretty unreadable, and or, or you know, and, and so because the audience is lost, poets have no sense of who to who to address, and so you're almost having to with every poem invent your audience with the language you're creating your own you have to from the beginning with every poem recreate invent your audience so it's a very difficult slog right now to write decent poetry yeah I mean, one of the other things uh i mean it almost it seems to parallel a little bit although the, the timing may not line up but fairly close many pieces of quote you know modern art at mm. some point um you know people are going to say just show me the rembrandt Right. I, I don't I don't I don't want to I don't want to see the, the Pollock or, you know, any number, any number of these people. Is, right. and, and, and maybe part of it, I mean, the argument would be is, well, there, there is needs to be more of a, um, uh, um, a quote educational process for people to get to a point where they can really appreciate, you know, how great art it is or how great the poetry is. But it always seemed to me a bit of a, a bit of a speak of arrogance to assume that the, that the culpability, as it were, always lied and you know, could be attributed to the, to the deficiencies of the receiver of the piece of, of art, no? Right. Well, you know, we have had something of a breakdown in the educational system. And so, um, you know, there's very little training in poetry and reading seriously or even looking at serious art in schools. Yeah. And so there's, the, the basis is not there. And so as a college professor, which I still am, you're, you know, you're, you're really, you're often really working very hard to try and it's as though, you know, we're a country which has lost its memory. It's like an Alzheimer's patient. When you talk to an old person with Alzheimer's, you have to supply memory as you have a conversation. Right. And so I find myself with students having to supply memory so we can talk. Yeah. But there's still, yeah, there's the educational, but the overall, wouldn't you say cultural aspect as well? For example, um, in Latin America, let's say Colombia, where I'm sitting at the moment, there's nobody. That's a little bit broad, but you know, conversation with anybody in the street who has read some of Garcia Marquez, at least a bit of yeah. them or a lot of them, yeah. and will actually be able to converse about aspects of it. I mean, that's just one example. I mean, you, you see that throughout the Americas. You know, I, I think in Europe you still see certainly my time living in Spain, you would mm -hmm. see see more of that, um, and 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 folks who were writing, and were appreciated by the people, and certainly at the official level, right? Um, mm -hmm. It was always the tradition in Europe and, and, and certainly Latin America that, that the great writers were revered, absolutely revered. Right. Um, I don't know if there was ever a time in the US um, where that was, that, that was the case. Um, mm -hmm. Why is that? Is that just because the way it is in the US? Is, there, is that a frustrating thing for a writer, for someone like you who'd say, look, I would like to reach a broader audience. I would like to reach the audience of the family that I grew up in in Scranton, Scranton, Pennsylvania. My grandparents, you know, as you would say, your grandparents are coal miners, your, your uncle died in a coal mine and, and yeah. the like. And you would like be those people to appreciate what you're writing. And maybe they're not because it's beyond sort of their reach. It's beyond their reach, but it's beyond the reach of, uh, of most people, even those who went to college in America. 
I don't know why, but it just is. People don't read much anymore. They listen to, I don't know what they listen to. They watch, now they watch Netflix and it's pretty, pretty brainless. Well, at least they'll get to see a lot of your stuff on Netflix. So, so there you go. <laughs> watch my movies. Maybe that's, that's what I think. I've taken the writing scripts lately. I've been working on three movies and I think that's, that might be my future. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reality of it is, if, you know, in your hands, they're, they're still getting it in, in uh, doses of it, just in, in, in a, different, a different vehicle for, for uh, delivering it. That's all. My novel about Tolstoy probably reached many more people as a, an Academy Award nominated film uh, with Helen Mirren and Christopher Plummer than it ever did as a novel. Yeah. Well, so be it. You're still reaching them. Uh, look, Jay, I, I, don't, I, I need to thank you very much. Um, for your time today. Thank you for being interested, Ken. So thank you so much. Okay, have a good afternoon. Bye, Bye now. Bye. Well, Chris, I think that interview just stands by itself. I don't think it needs any more commentary. Why don't you tell the audience what they've been listening to? They've been listening to Two Gringos with Questions. Well done. <laughs>